This is the Dice Tower Network, adding games to your wish list since 2005. The home of smart people, insightful board gaming commentary, and Luke Hector. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Three years of doing the Broken Meeple. Well, there's only one way to celebrate, and that's for doing my top 100 of all time. Yes, 75 is not enough. Here we're going through the top 100 piece by piece as of July 2016. Hello, thanks for tuning in, and yes, you heard right, top 100. Last year I did the top 75 as a two-year anniversary of starting up the Broken Meeple, but 75 was about as much as I could do back then. There were only so many games I'd played and enjoyed that much that there could be a top 75 list. I mean, I did lose a few off the list, but 100 would have been pushing it. Since then, though, I've been doing loads of reviews, I've been playing a ton more games, getting involved a lot more at conventions, and as a result... Let's just say the collection's increased and so is my exposure to a lot of games. So therefore, a top 100 was actually a lot easier to do this year than it would have been expected. Now, it's a lot of work, granted, but in terms of finding 100 games, I've got plenty of little sheets of paper here with games that miss the list because, well, I can only fit 100 games. Now, what I have got is a spreadsheet with all the listings there from 1 to 100, and also last year's 1 to 75, and I'm comparing the two years. Now, obviously, it's a bit weird to compare two years when there was 25 more games this year than there were last year, so you are going to notice that a lot of them have come down the charts. Some have gone up, but majority have come down or debuted. And, well, that's to be expected. I've literally shoved in an extra 33 new games on this list compared to last year's top 75. So that means if you assume that 25 new games are literally just there just to fill up the maths, then 8 new games have come on the list and 8 have fallen off. So what ones are they? Well, we'll find out a bit later. Now, just a very quickie about how this was actually prepared, I kind of used Tom Vassell's way of doing it. I know that's kind of like, you know, sucking up to the big man, but in the end, I find that method actually works quite well. Effectively, I go on Word and I type in all my top-rated games into a Word template with all the labels. I then print them off, slice them all up with a handy trimmer I've got, and then I'm left with a bunch of little labels with printed names of all my favourite games on them. And what I do is that I pick one at random, completely at random, and stick it face up on the table. From there, I then look through all of the other games in that pile. And I decide whether I'm going to say it's better than this game or worse than. From my own perspective, you know, do I, if I, let's, for example, let's take a game completely out of the open, uh, the Castle Panic. Let's take that, for example. Let's say that was the one in the middle. I then look at all the games after that. So let's say the next one happened to be, well, let's say Settlers of Catan. Do I think Settlers of Catan is better than Castle Panic, yes or no? And then I put it on one side, depending on my answer. I do this with all of the other games in the pack until I've got two separate piles along with this one in the middle. 
And then what I do is I separate the ones at the bottom, keep that single castle panic one there off to one side, and then I do the exact same thing for the big the upper pile. I take one at random and then decide yay or nay. And I keep doing this until the piles get smaller and smaller, until there's say about five max in a pile. And the idea is, is that when I get piles like this, I can then look through those remaining few and go, yeah, that's better than that one, I prefer this to that one, and so on. And eventually, the piles get so small that I piece them all together, and the top 100 essentially forms itself. And I tend to get the top half done before I do the bottom half, it just seems to work out that way. But that's how Tom Vassell does his top 100 list, unless he's changed his methodology recently, and I find it works quite well for me. It does mean that I've got a lot of these tiny little labels everywhere, but it was fun sorting them out, even if it did take many hours to do so. Now I have got comparison results from last year, as I mentioned. I also have all the little slips of paper for games that fell off, and what I'll do is, when I'm done with this top 100, I will mention which games fell off the list, I will mention which games didn't make the cut, and, you know, give my own thoughts on it. But during the lists, I will mention how many places it's gone up, how many places it's gone down, whether it's a new debut, that etc. Just in case you're not entirely versed with the last year's top 75, and I wouldn't blame you if you wouldn't. So... Without further ado on that, let's make a start. The format is going to be seven episodes in total throughout August explaining my top 100. I'll try and get them done as quickly as possible, but considering I'm moving to temporary accommodation literally this Saturday, then, you know, once I'm there, it's going to be hit and miss trying to find spare time to get the podcast running. But I will get these done during August. I will get as many done in advance. I will do it as quick as I can. The official moves in September, so I'm very excited. But as of as of this Saturday, I will no longer be in this flat. So circumstances are changing rapidly. I'm going to do seven episodes, like I said. The first two will be 20 games mentioned. So 100 to 81 and then 80 to... 61. Yeah, get the maths right. Then the next two will be 15 games, and then the remaining three will be 10 games apiece, because I want to talk more about the games I really love, you know, like ultra love, compared to the ones that are at the bottom of the list. And that's not to say that the bottom of this top 100 means that the game's rubbish, or I think it's meh, you know. No, I really like all 100 of these games. If you've got just all these 100 games, I'd be happy to play any single one of them. And, you know, that is the truth. Even the ones that just missed the cut, that doesn't mean they're bad games. It's just the fact that I can only fit 100 games on this list. Trust me, if you make one of these lists yourself and you've played this many games, or I'm sure most of you have played even more games than I have, then you know how difficult it is to get all the games that you really, really like on a list like this. So, without further ado, let's begin numbers 100 to 81. Let's begin right now. Number 100, you're probably going to cry foul the second I mention this name, because technically it's not a board game, it's a card game, and, well, card games are fine, aren't they? Yeah, but when I say card game, I mean a deck of cards. This is, you know, it's not a card game that's been published, this is just a game you play with a deck of cards. And it was 39 places higher last year. I really do enjoy this game, particularly the Texas Hold'em version of it, and yes, it's straight up poker. 
I like playing Texas Hold'em poker particularly. I've been around pubs to play it. I've gone to the local casino every now and again just to join a cheap £20 tournament. Even if I don't win, I mean, let's face it, I've never really won one of the casino tournaments before. I've come close, but never actually won one. It's just fun to play. I enjoy spending a few hours of a night partaking in some beverages and just playing poker with a bunch of random new people as you try to get inside their heads and see how they tick. It's an entertaining game and it's one that I would gladly play again if there was more time to. But, you know, obviously there are 99 more games I prefer than poker, so we'll continue on. Number 99 is a two-player only card game with lots of these computer 8-bit graphics all over them. It's very mentally, well, let's say it's mentally stimulating just to put it one way or another. This one will burn your brain out if you're not careful. And even though the component quality, particularly the mat, could be improved, I really do enjoy playing this game with someone who knows what they're doing and that's Pixel Tactics from Level 99 Games. Pixel Tactics has you layout cards that have multiple ways of using them. You've got a vanguard ability, you've got a middle ability, middle row ability, you've got the rear guard ability, you've got a spell-like ability, you've got the hero ability if you use it as your main guy. They've got so many things that each card can do and with your deck of 25 of these you basically battle the opponent to try and kill his opposing hero and when you mix and match all the different sets you just get all sorts of different classes and combinations and you have to be used to that kind of computer graphic style artwork to really get into this and I do wish that they printed a proper mat that was on retail sale not just one that was on their website in the US thank you level 99 games but pixel tactics is still great fun yes it's down 39 places again I 39 seems to be a theme at the moment it was at number 60 last year it's gone down a bit it's hard to find opponents for this there's only really one guy I get to play this with very often because he also owns pixel tactics but it's still a very solid two-player game. Pixel Tactics number 99. 98 is technically a debut on the list, but it's not a new game. It's just new on my list because it wasn't on last year's, and everybody knows this one. It's King of Tokyo, or King of New York, whichever one you want to do. I personally amalgamate them together. This is a very fun dice game that is so simple to teach to anybody. I don't care if it's the Tokyo version or the New York version. It's dead simple to teach. I mean, okay, yes, Tokyo is probably the much more easier version, but New York's not that much more difficult. you just got to teach a couple of extra rules, and that's about it, really. But I prefer New York from a gamer perspective. But you are essentially using the Yahtzee dice mechanic with all your monsters and beating the snot out of everybody else on the table whilst making, you know, stupid monster noises and trash talking and everything. It's, let's face it, if you know games, you know King of Tokyo by now, so what do I need to do to explain it? It's a great dice game. It didn't make my top 75 last year, but if it was a top 100, I'm pretty sure it would have ended up around this position again. I kind of burnt out on it after a while, but still really enjoy playing it every now and again, just not like 10 times a night as it was getting ridiculous how often this thing turned up. Still love it though, 98, King of Tokyo slash New York. (music) 
My 97 was my 67 last year, and that is Kingsburg. Kingsburg is still a very good gateway-level dice game that has you rolling dice, placing them on various characters, and gathering resources or special abilities that the characters provide. You're fighting for spaces against all your opponents, and you build these buildings which give you even more special abilities or give you points or added combat values when fighting monsters at the end of a phase. Now, I have to stress the caveat that, to be honest, this wouldn't be on the list if it wasn't for the expansion. The To Forge a Realm, to Forge a Realm expansion was so good that it still keeps this in the top 100. Without it, I'm kind of meh. But adding those extra buildings and the fact that you can chop and change the rows to your liking with event cards and personal character abilities, it just stepped it up the mark and kept it on this top 100. So, yes, it's come down, but like I said, 25 new games... Sorry, 33 new games even. And it's still a classic that I enjoy playing. So, Kingsburg 97. My 96 is the game that has dropped the highest on this list without falling off. It has dropped a colossal 67 places since it was last on here. And the reason for that is something that you'll find out in a future episode of this Top 100. But for now, that game is Carcassonne. Yes, one of the gateway classics. I still enjoy playing this game a lot, preferably with expansions included, I have to say. It doesn't have to have loads of them, just maybe the first couple of big box ones, the Traders and the Inns of Cathedrals, I think those two are solid, and I'll still play the base game when I'm teaching it, but ideally I want to throw in one or two expansions and change things up a bit. I've even got the Hills and Sheep one, which throws an interesting tweak to it with the wolf that can come along and eat your sheep, and if you get lots of sheep you get more points. It's quite a nice little addition, but... Carcassonne still remains one of the staple gateway games to have in your collection if you want to teach anybody about tile lane or Euro games in general, this is definitely one to go for. Still enjoy it, even though it's dropped a lot, still hanging in there on the top 100. Carcassonne. My number 95 has dropped 22 places from last year, and it's a little filler bluffing game, and I, to be fair, I'd never even heard of its existence before someone showed it to me, but it just took me over by storm. You know, I really wanted to play it again, I grabbed my own copy, and it really, I think this is one of the ones that got me into bluffing games, and that's Cockroach Poker Royal, or Cockroach Poker, it doesn't really matter, or Kakalaken Poker, however you want to pronounce the German version of it. But basically, this is a small little bluffing filler where you take a card that has one of seven different types of vermin on it, like frog, or bat, or rat, or uh, beetle, that kind of thing, and you pass it face down to a player, and you say, this is a beetle. They can then say whether you're telling the truth, lying, or look at it and pass it to someone else. And then they make up their own claim about it, whether whether it's a beetle or a rat or whatever. And it rinses and repeats until someone gets called out. Very simple, but the cool thing with this is that nobody wins. It's whoever loses by having four of the same card in front of them. So everybody's just trash-talking each other and everyone's getting into the bluffing. It's so good, so short and simple, easy to teach. And it's just one of my favourite bluffing fillers that you can get out there. Cockroach Poker 95.
My 94 is a new debut, just pipping in on the top 100, and that is a negotiation game called Dragon's Gold. This one is straight up negotiation. You have a hand of adventurers that you play down onto these dragon cards that have various coloured gems on them. Some of them are already there, some of them are hidden after the battle's won. When your adventurers from all the players beat the dragon strength, all the gems are there, and then you have a minute to basically negotiate with all the other players involved how are you going to split the loot? You can't make future deals, you can't rely on past deals, you have to decide there and then how you're going to split up these uneven distribution of gems without, you know, making problem, you know, without making promises and all that. And if you, nobody decides, then nobody gets anything. So it's just straight up classic negotiation at its best. There's no like ways to influence it. It's just I've got these gems and everybody's gems are hidden behind a screen so you don't fully know who's got what but it's like oh I want to I'll take that red and this green one. Hey excuse me I want that one. I want this one and I'm taking these two reds too. Hey come on fair deals Matt and all this trash talking is going on between the players and with two players it's not so bad you know you can make some deals but with four or more with four players in this four or more in the same battle oh god the negotiations are just classic to listen to especially if you're just on the sidelines you know you can just break out some popcorn and just watch the sparks fly as everybody, especially when you get selfish players in this who aren't willing to share at all, is like, no, fine, gonna, I'm going to tank this one. I don't care, you ain't getting that black gem. It ain't happening. You give me all this or I tank it. You know, it's just great fun to watch. So I like playing this every now and again when I've got that dreaded sort of uh, five or six player mark. It still plays really quickly. It's a good laugh. If you like negotiation games, have a look at it. If you don't like negotiation games, then you're going to absolutely detest this one. And I completely understand that. 94 Dragon's Gold. My 93 is a new debut, it wasn't on the last top 75, and it's a small filler game that won the Spiel de Yaris in one year, and I've been touting the praises of this game for a long while, saying that this is a perfect travel game for up to 2-5 to five players that has one of the most unique mechanisms ever brought to a card game, and that is Hanabi. Hanabi is just, it's completely different. The fact that you, it takes you ages just to get used to the fact that you have to draw a card and have it face away from you. That in alone is completely unique. Now, yes, we've got the new one beyond, uh, was it beyond, ba no, Baker Street, something, I think it's beyond Baker Street, the new one, and it uses a similar mechanic. But Hanabi was the one that did it first, even though the theme made no sense with all the fireworks and that. It was just a little puzzle game that you could do as a co op with other players, and it didn't matter if it was five players or two players, it worked equally well. I remember taking this along to a camping trip with my ex-girlfriend and we were camping in Cornwall and this was, she didn't play that many games but she really latched on to some of my fillers and Hanabi was one of them. We used to just play Hanabi two player constantly until we were all in each other's heads able to do really well. Great little fun game and I love using it as a gateway teaching tool because, well, this is me, I like to use gateway games a lot. So Hanabi 93. My 92 dropped 
39 places to be where it is now, and this is a game where if you don't feel like playing it, you could also use it as a lethal bludgeoning weapon. It's big enough to certainly cause physical harm if you were to use it in such a way with the colossal amount of pieces and the size of the box. It takes over 6 hours to play, it is a true epic level game, and I do get a kick out of playing this even though I don't own my own copy, I have to rely on a couple of mates to bring theirs to a convention in order to play it, but it's still great fun. Twilight Imperium Free. Yes, Sam Healy's favourite game that he touts about all the time. I still enjoy it. I mean, you know I'm not the biggest fan of overly long games, but if I'm involved and I'm immersed in the theme, then it's worth being in it for that long. And for Twilight Imperium Free, this is one of those examples where that's the case. I can be immersed for the whole six hours, levelling up my race, building ships, acquiring technologies, getting in everyone's faces, and the betrayal stories in this, especially ones that I've conducted, you know, on occasion, uh, all last forever. I swear there's one guy who will never trust me again in any Twilight Imperium free game ever, as I called the truce to begin with, and for a while I did hold that truce, until near the end of the game where a winning objective required me to go take him out. So it's like... Sorry, but, you know, the cards kind of willed me to do it. You know, I just need to pop into your home planet for a second. It was great fun. But, well, not for him, I suppose. But it's a great game. Still good fun, even if it's difficult to find the time and the people to actually play this one because it's just so huge in scale. That's 92 Twilight Imperium 3. My 91 is the my most favourite Stefan Feld game ever. So, spoiler alert, there's no more Stefan Feld games on this list. <gasps> Shock horror! Yeah, there. Like you expected many Stefan Feld games on this list, let's be honest. This is the one Stefan Feld game that I can get behind and say, I legitimately enjoy this one. Down 32 places to 91, that is Amerigo. Amerigo, for some reason, has latched onto me and stuck. Yes, it's got no theme. Whatever theme it has about exploring islands and building settlements is completely ridiculous and no point to it. But it's got nice components. You are moving a ship around a map which is ever changing every game. And the thing that really gets me with this though, you know, it's not all the point tracks everywhere and the fact that you've got occasional pirates which are basically just a point a mechanism at the end of the day. It's that cube tower. I really want to play Wallenstein and Shogun. In fact, I've even got the Shogun Kickstarter big box, hopefully getting delivered at some point. Come on, Queen Games, what's, what's keeping you so long? But I really, really like the cube tower in this. I love chucking the cubes in and seeing what comes out. It's just a cool little mechanic. But the fact that your actions that you can do each round are dependent on what cubes come out and how many of them come out, you have to think really tactically in this game, and I really enjoy that. This one just hit me so well, despite the fact that all other Stefan Fell games are, are more kind of meh, or uh, this is not that great, or oh my god, I hate this game. You know, that's tenderly me with Stefan Fell. There's nothing against the designer, I just like games with theme for the most part, and of course Stefan Fell is basically just mechanisms for mechanism's sake. I've yet to play Trajan though, so I'd be willing to give that one a try, but I mean, I've tried Bruges, I've tried Notre Dame, I've tried that Aquasphere one, I've tried In the Year in the year of the Dragon, bleh, you know, and various others. It's He's just not the designer for me, and that's just a personal thing. I know he's incredibly popular and fair play. So if you like Stefan Fell games, go for it. For me, here's my highlight, 91 Amerigo.
Getting into the next bracket of 10 games, my number 90 was 27 places higher last year, and you probably haven't even heard of this one, called Firenze, F-I-R-E-N-Z-E. This is released by Pegasus Spiel. You can't really find it in the UK very easily unless you find it second-hand. I can't remember how I found it. I think it must have been a similar way, I know, second-hand market. And it's illustrated by Michael Menzel, who, if you've seen any of my other recent reviews with, like, Legends of Andor and that and Pillars of the Earth, oh, God, I love this artist. He just makes such gorgeous boards. And even though there's not a huge amount to actually look at in this game, the artwork, what there is, is beautiful. But what is Frenzy? Frenzy is a Euro game where you are building towers, and you're building them to satisfy certain commissions. You know, like, I want green tower this high, I want a yellow tower this high. And the way it works is that You've got bricks that are on these cards, and you decide which card you want to take. It gives you a special ability or point scoring, that kind of thing, in a similar way to Small World, where whichever card you choose, you have to put an extra brick on the card, and you get the bricks that are on those cards, and you use them to build the towers. But if you don't work on a specific tower at the end during a round, then you have to demolish the tower. So you've got to keep the building continuous, otherwise they think you've cancelled the project and they, you, know, you have to demolish it all and all your hard work's over. It's a nice little and fairly simplistic Euro game, and I'm, I'm probably not selling it as well as all that, but seriously, this is a lot better than it looks, and it's a neat little... You know, just a neat little Euro game with these cool little wooden bricks. It looks the part, both in components and artwork. Very nice, but I agree, it's not the easiest one to find. So if you can find it, Firenze, my number 90. My number 89 is another colossal drop here, 57 places. Now that's not because I hate the game or anything, it's just like I say, there's only so much room. But recently, I suppose, people have wanted to play this game with too many players, and I do think that this game should be capped at 4 or 5, but people will keep wanting to bring in 7 or 8 and add extra dice. I'm talking, of course, about Liar's Dice, or Perudo, whichever way you want to call it. I prefer Liar's Dice. Now, I like to cap this around four or five players, and recently I've been playing it a lot with more players because people want to bring in more players, which is fine, but I think that ruins the game. It makes it far too chaotic. I like it when you've just got four or five of you and you're trying to work out, ooh, he said six fives. Oh, I don't know, there's only so many dice. He could be bluffing, let's see. And when it goes past you, it's going to come right round to you eventually, whereas with multiple players, as soon as it goes past you, it's never going to get right round to you again, really. So it kind of ruins that aspect. But basically, Liar's Dice is the game they play in Pirates of the Caribbean too. you know, where they're bidding on years of servitude on is it Davy Jones's ship. And it's been a while since I've seen that film. And Liar's Dice is just great fun for me. It's a straight-up dice bluffing game. Very simple, very easy to transport. I've just basically got a cube that's shaped like a dice with dice and cups in it. And it's still great fun to play. I really enjoy this one. Liar's Dice 89. My number 88 is a new debut to the list, and continuing the theme of bluffing and hidden roles, you'll notice a slight repeating theme of that on this list, but that is Shadow Hunters. Shadow Hunters has each person taking up a good guy or bad guy or neutral role in secret, and you're on those good evil teams or neutral by yourself, and the idea is, is that you will roll dice and you will go to various locations, pick up weapons and abilities, but ideally you are asking people questions that are on 
a particular card. So you, you'll give a card to someone and it will say, I think you are either evil or neutral. Do this if I'm right. And the idea is, is that depending on these people's responses, you start trying to figure out whose side everybody's on. And the good guys are trying to kill the bad guys. Bad guys are trying to kill the good guys. And the neutrals all have their own agenda. It's really cool. And everybody's got a different amount of life. So certain characters have a cool ability but die easily. Some of them just are immortal but only do so much. It's great hidden bluffing game. And it doesn't get a lot of love. I don't see it as often. Maybe because it's out of print or perhaps... People just haven't really got round to trying it. But honestly, if you like hidden role games and you want something with a bit of a twist with that little extra team play, then something in that kind of, well, I wouldn't say one night werewolf style, but, you know, it's all vampires and werewolves and witch hunters, you know, that kind of theme, then seriously give this one a look. It's underrated, in my opinion. Shadowhunters 88. Number 87 only dropped 22 places. It's still a, I suppose I can call it a party game that I like to bring out on occasion. And it freaks the hell out of people when I show it on the board. Because they look at all these pictorial diagrams and they go, what on earth does this all mean? What's all this question mark and all these exclamation marks everywhere? And what's all these pictures? What am I supposed to do with this? And, you know, once you explain it, they get the idea. But it takes a little bit of working and suddenly they go... Oh yeah, that's really cool and different. And then everyone gets into the game. And that's Concept. Concept is a game where you are... It's the traditional style of guess the clue on the card. But you do it by placing these tokens and markers on different pictures on this board. And they represent things like food and drink. Male, female, fast, slow, shaped, tall, colour, blue, white, green. You know, that kind of thing. And by placing the markers in various positions, you are trying to in an abstract, out-of-the-box kind of way, describe the word that's on your card. So something like milk would be food and drink, it would be a liquid, white and blue, and cold. And you would represent this by the pictures. That's an easy example. And you do get some stupidly hard ones in there. I mean, seriously, do not play this and use the catchphrases, because I don't know how you're supposed to get any of those catchphrases with the use of the pictures. But there's plenty of other clues on the card. You could even just make up your own, to be honest. You don't even have to worry about point scoring in this game. It's completely pointless. (laughs) But you essentially just play it as an activity, more or less. But it's a great activity. 87 Concept. Belting along here, 86 is a classic gateway co-op game. This is still one of the ones that I pull out on a regular basis when I am teaching brand new gamers to co-ops, but I don't want to use its predecessor because I find that one's just a bit too simple. I much prefer this one from a personal perspective. I would still play it now as a gamer, and that is Matt Leacock's Forbidden Desert. I like Forbidden Island. It's a great teaching game, and I have suggested it to many of my friends who have bought it and got their five-year-olds to play with it, and with good results. But personally, I think Desert is the better of the two. Dropped down 16 places, so it was just on the last year's list, and in the end, it's a great simple co-op game. You're moving your tokens around this desert that's slowly building up with sand as you try to piece together this ancient ship and fly out to safety. Of course, you've got to put up with the wind constantly burying you under sand and the sun beating down on you, meaning that you have to drink water. Otherwise, if one of you dies, you lose the game. There's no, like, every man for himself mentality. This is everybody must survive. So, 
you know, you have got this cool co-op nature. Now, like most co-ops, they can be alpha games, but that's more of a player thing than it is a game thing. So I would certainly say that if you want a gateway co-op that's very simple to play and teach, but still looks the business and costs next to nothing... I mean, seriously, you can buy this for like £15, £16, and you get nice components in there, including a rather pointless you know, plastic ship that you can build out of bits, but it's still fun when you've essentially gone around the desert, put the bits together, and you put all the pawns in the ship, and you go, wee! You know, and uh, okay, yeah, if you're a child, but or me, I suppose, but as I always do that. It's just a great little co-op game. I've used it plenty of times. It's got great results. Still love it. 86, Forbidden Desert. Number 85 is a brand new debut, and you'd be surprised to think that I would put games like this on the list, but believe it or not, I do like abstract games. I really do like abstract games. Yes, I always say that I'm big on theme, but abstract games weren't designed to have theme. But they're just really good two-player, head-to-head, brain-thinky puzzle games, and I love them to bits. I used to play chess when I was younger, about 12 to 14 years, well, earlier than that. I played in a primary school chess club, and I played for Taunton Town for my early teenage years, mostly with a bunch of old people, which... To be fair, how many teenagers were playing chess in those days, but still really loved it. This one is Camisado. Camisado is an abstract game where each of you has a row of towers, and these are beautiful looking towers on this coloured square board, a bit like chess. And the idea is, is that when you move a tower of a particular colour, the sp- sorry, no, when you move a yes, when you move a tower that has a specific colour on it, the space that you land on or that you choose to move to is the colour of the tower your opponent must then move and so on and so forth until one of you gets a tower into the opposing player's line. It's one of those classic abstract games that really has you thinking because in the end, if you get into a position where you lost the game, it's your fault, pure and simple because you gave the opponent the move that he used to beat you, pure and simple. Yes, he may have outplayed you or used some clever thing, but in the end of the day, he couldn't have moved that thing to that line if you hadn't put the tower in such a place that allowed him to do it. It's a great abstract game, a very new one. I've only recently got it, but already it's shot up to 85 on this list. It's I really do like abstract games, and this won't be the only one you see on this list. So, Kamasado, 85, check it out if you're a fan of the genre. Okay, not many more to go for this episode. 84 is another debut. There's still one more debut to talk about on this episode, but for now, this one is a straight-up combat, I'd say hybrid game. It's kind of, yeah, it's more of a hybrid game, but this is just straight-up getting everyone's face and attack each other. And you do it with cool monster pieces, with all different types of technology for aggressive, defensive, and, you know, utility, power kind of thing. And you do this on this weirdly designed board that means that you're close to everybody. I don't know how on earth they managed to do it, but basically you're very close to everybody, so, you know, you can't turtle in this game. You've got to just get out and fight. And that is Kemet. Kemet is based on an Egyptian theme where you have these 
power dice, these gigantic D4s that get you access to all these different technologies and you can decide how you want to play. You know, do you want to go hyper-aggressive? Do you want to be defensive so that you can hold on to positions better? Or do you want to get the weird little utility powers that allow you to do stuff cheaper or to move around the board more? The expansion added a fourth color, which was an interesting one by itself and some extra cool mechanics. But even the straight-up base game of Kemet is great fun. This is kind of like the upgrade to Risk, I suppose, in a sense. I don't know if that's fair to compare it to that, but it's great. You're constantly fighting, you can't turtle, and you've got a hand of cards that you use as the combat modifier. So there'll be a certain amount of wounds dealt, there'll be some damage dealt, and there'll be some shield blocking. And you play these cards. You know, you have to wait until you've used up your hand to get them all back. But it's, you get into your opponent's head as to, what's he going to do in this combat? Ooh, which one shall I play? So there's no dice involved. You know, there's pretty much no luck in this game, as far as I'm aware. You use cards to do the combat. You buy your own techs. There's no dice rolling. Yeah, it's not a luck game. This is basically what Risk wishes it could be. You know, Egyptian theme with lots of big monster pieces. Just what more do you need? Kemet 84. My number 83 only dropped 12 places, which means it was just hanging on to the top 75 last year. This is a classic that I knew from my childhood days. You know, I used to play the original version of this, the 80s version, loads, and I really loved it as you tried to get all your pieces off this crumbling island before it eventually dissolved away and you were eaten by sea monsters. It's as ferocious a game as you can possibly get for a gateway game, and that is Survive Escape from Atlantis. I've got the 30th Anniversary Edition, which has great components, Sea monsters, you can add a squid in there as well, which just gets ridiculous. You know, it's just basically the death toll goes catastrophic when you add the squid in. As you previously, you thought, oh, I'm safe on this island, it's okay, as long as I'm on an island piece, it's good. Not when the squid's involved, because the squid just comes along and goes, yoink, and nicks you off the island. Great fun, and you've got to be prepared for the fact that this is a take that game at its very heart and core. This is basically in your face. I am directly hurting your pieces and ruining your chances of winning. You know, this there is no light side to this, apart from the fact that it's funny that you're getting eaten up by sea monsters. It's great, but it's just so much fun. Just be aware that. Kids are probably not the best people to play this with, I don't know. Especially the ones who are sore losers and cry. I probably wouldn't suggest it. But with gamers, oh, we just love trash talking amongst each other. So, aha, gonna, you know, my sea monster edging towards the ships. I'm going to get you, going to get you. <laughs> it's all good fun. Survive, Escape from Atlantis, classic. Two more to go. First up, Pathfinder the Adventure Card Game. This has dropped 27 places, mainly because it's been hard to get it to the table lately, but I still enjoy the Skulls and Shackles specific expansion that I have for this game. This is essentially like playing D&D in a card game. You level up your character throughout this, you know, semi 
semi-simple but semi-cool you know storyline but the idea is is that you are going around different locations and you are fighting monsters and chasing down the you know the is it the mastermind or the i'm trying to think the the basically the main bad guy and your character levels up between games you acquire new loot which essentially means that you swap cards in your basic starter deck for more impressive stuff your abilities level up allowing you to have more cards in your deck and your deck is also your life so you know the more cards that are drained out the quicker the game will end it's a cool little concept and granted the rule books could be written a bit clearer but once you get your head around it it's a very entertaining game and it's i've only played it no actually i've played it a couple of times as a group but mostly i just play the solo two-handed and it's great fun really enjoy it really want to get it out onto the table i've just been a bit busy lately but certainly it's still there with a few expansions in it and i can't wait to get it back to the table again once I've moved house. Pathfinder, the adventure card game, 82. And finally, for this segment anyway, my number 81 is a new debut to the list. And you might cry foul at this one as well, because technically I've played all the games that I can out of this. Until they release the next one, I can't actually do anything with this game. I've played my, was it, 16 games out of this thing, and it's now basically just going to have the board hopefully mounted on my wall in my future games room. That's the intention. But when they release Season 2, I'm going to get into this one as well, just the same, and that's Pandemic Legacy. Pandemic, as some people may know, is a co-op that I respect, but I don't love. It hasn't made this list, spoiler alert. But... I don't know, Pandemic normally just felt too much like a bit of a puzzle rather than a thematic co-op to me. Now what Pandemic Legacy did though was introduce that theme that I wanted, the fact that the game state changed all the time and believe me it does, even though the story elements are a little predictable, it still throws some really cool spanners into the work and changes up Pandemic into something that's a lot more enjoyable. I played this with a group of free free mates of mine who love the original Pandemic more than I do. And I had such a blast with it. I got the game, we played 16 games and completed it, and it was great fun. Sorry to anybody who lives in uh, South America, by the way, and parts of Africa. We kind of messed up on those two countries, but it wasn't our fault. The game did it for us. But either way, the game was a blast to play and certainly gave me a reason to enjoy Pandemic again. Season 2 should be just as fun, if not better, as they get the feedback from the first season. Now, I don't agree that this should be the number one game of all time, you know, with the hype and everything, but certainly this is definitely worth checking out if you've got an interest in either the Legacy format or Pandemic. Either way, I think you'll get your money's worth, certainly, once you've played through the entire campaign. So ignore all this thing about, oh, once you've played it, it's no longer in use or whatever. To be honest, if I'm paying £40, something like that, for a game that I'm going to play 17 times, I've got my money's worth, people. So lay off it, okay? Legacy format is fine, just as long as not every single game becomes it. We'll we'll see what happens in the next few years, I guess. So, 81 to wrap up this episode, Pandemic Legacy. And there we are for the first 20 games of my top 100. All of these games are great games. All of these are highly enjoyable, but the best is still yet to come. I cannot wait to get towards my top 50 games where just some absolute joyful games I can talk about in more detail hopefully than I've done so far so stay tuned keep in touch 
I'll see you in part two. You're listening to the Dice Tower Network. If you like this show, you might like The Dukes of Dice or Ludology. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. <laughs>